Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. It's good to see you this morning. It's a good crowd today, by the way, for an early August, I guess it is, August uh, morning. And uh, I know some of you college students are getting ready to head back to school. We had a big fellowship on Wednesday night with uh, a bunch of our college students and said goodbye to those who are heading back. But I want to say to all of you who are going back to school next year and and, uh, heading off, whether it's your first time or you're going after a couple of years of uh, college experience under your belt, we miss you when you're gone. We love it when you're home. We're praying for you while you're there, all right? And we don't want you to ever forget you've got a church family that loves you and cares about you and wants the best for you. I hope that as soon as you get on campus, you'll join a couple of campus groups that'll help you in your faith walk. And I hope you'll find the closest local church that teaches the Bible. Plug in, be part of it, volunteer for them, and make them your home away from home. You'll never regret doing that. It'll give you a, a step in your Christian life. It'll, it'll, it'll be an encouragement uh, to the church you join. It will be accountability for you. So let me urge you to do that. Whether you're going to a Christian college or a secular school or a state university or a private college, don't leave your walk with the Lord behind. Take it with you and see what God does as he continues to grow you. Well, we're in Galatians chapter 5 and 6 this morning. Now you say, I thought Pastor Ben finished chapter 5 last week. And he did, but we're going to visit for visit it just a little bit more for a very specific reason. I grew up in the Midwest, in the, uh, the northern part of the state of Missouri, and uh, Missouri, Iowa, um, Nebraska, Kansas, it kind of all joins together, and uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, and some of you who are older may remember because they were very popular charity back in the 70s and 80s, but uh, there, was a, there was a boys' home, and um, it was called Boys' Town. It was a Catholic uh, orphanage uh, for young kids back when orphanages were... Uh, more common than they are now. It was started by a guy by the name of Father Edward Flanagan, and he became a little bit of a folk hero. I believe it was Mickey Rooney, wasn't it, that was in a, in a movie that kind of portrayed uh, some things that happened at Boys Town and so forth. But if you ever visit the campus there, there is a, a uh, uh, statue that's very, very famous, and uh, here's a picture of it. And the story behind this statue is inspirational, and, and it is a legend of that time. As the story goes, in, 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 um, uh, when, when this was founded uh, in uh, the early uh, 1900s, 1917, I believe is when it was founded, Father Flanagan was the guy that kind of got it going and get started, and he was very commonly seen across the campus. And uh, one day, about 1918, he was walking across the, the campus and went into one of the buildings, and he saw a kid by the name of Reuben Granger who had another boy up on his back. And he was carrying the boy, and this other boy's name was Howard. And this kid had had polio. In the early part of the 1900s, polio was, was the COVID kind of of that, of that generation. It was something you feared, and particularly it struck young people severely. And once you got polio, your legs usually were permanently weakened, uh, sometimes to the point where you would have to wear braces for the rest of your life. It, it, in some cases, it was fatal, but it was a, it was a horrifying disease until they got the, uh, the, the vaccination or the immunization that would help you with it. Uh, back when I was a kid, they would line you up and give everybody a, a sugar cube with your polio vaccine on it. Some of you may remember that. But, but uh, this kid had had polio. He could no longer walk. 
And so this boy, Reuben Granger, was carrying little Howard up the steps of the orphanage. And, uh, and uh, Father Flanagan stopped him and he said, Reuben, man, isn't, isn't that tough for you? You carry this boy all over campus and, and he's heavy and, and, and you're not that big. And, and, and he said, no, 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 no. And here's his words. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. And those words were etched into the legendary history of Boys Town. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. And that's what we're going to think about today as we look at this passage that we just read. Verse 25 and 26 is the conclusion of chapter 5. You understand that all the words of Scripture that we read are divinely inspired by God. But the chapter divisions and the verse divisions were put there by man as a convenience. He didn't talk in the terms, God didn't dictate in the terms and superintend in the terms to the writers. Now, put a, put a one here, then put a two here, and then put a chapter division there. But that was added by translators later on. So sometimes we look at the passages and the, tra- the, the, the way the translators divided it looks a little off or a little awkward. And you have to go back and you say, are these two passages connected? Because many times when we're reading chapter to chapter, we disconnect. And we say, oh, this is a new thought. This is a new section, like we would if we were reading a book. But this isn't just a book. This is far more than a book. These are letters. These are thoughts. These, these come together. So there's a lot of disagreement among Bible scholars about whether or not this was the best place for a break between the end of verse 26 and the beginning of, ch- of chapter one or chapter 6, verse 1. So I want to read it to you again and, and try, if you can, to move away from the this, this shift. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But each one Let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So when we read this passage, this is a a continual thought of instruction that Paul is given to the church at Galatia. Now remember, as we've been studying over the last several months and we've unfolded this, Paul was doing battle with those who would add law to grace, that would go back to the old system of the Judaistic traditions that say your righteousness is an earned righteousness. It's a, it's a symbol of your devoutness and of your, your spiritual standing before God. And God will reward you based on how you perform these duties. And, and if you want to be right with God, and if you want to go to heaven, and if you want to be considered a spiritual devout person, then here is the law. Keep the law. Let it be your taskmaster. And it will always remind you that you are not good enough, but you can keep trying and keep working. And all of this oppression is what Christ came to free us from, from the restriction, from the, from, from, from the constant feeling that how good you were was still not good enough. And so as he explained grace and that the fact that Jesus fulfilled the law, 
He was the only one who could complete the law. He's the one who, who was never broken by the law. And the sins of mankind were placed on him, and he vicariously fulfilled the law for us. And in his mercy and in his grace, he forgave us. And he alone has the authority to stand before God and to pronounce us worthy of heaven because our worthiness is imputed from him to us through the Holy Spirit. And so he's trying to explain this. And there were some who said, yeah, all of that, but I still think we ought to keep the law. And yeah, 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 we still need these rules. We need these principles. We need these, these guidelines or we're just going to be a mess. And, and, and Paul's saying, yeah, but the better way is love. And over and over and over in his letters to the churches, he's emphasizing this. We often read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is the, the, what we call the great love chapter. But if you'll go back and look how it starts and at the end of chapter 12, he says, I want to show you a better way. A better way of serving God is to love him so much that the law is inconsequential because your desire is to be like him. So now, Paul, having taught this and explained this, and he said, you got two ways to walk. You can walk in the flesh or you can walk in the spirit. And through, two weeks ago, three weeks ago when I was preaching, you know, I had the list of horrible sins. And we talked about those. And how those come with walking in the flesh. And then the next week, Ben got, well, got up and talked about the fruit of the Spirit, the consequences of walking in the Spirit, and joy and peace and those kind of things. And this stark contrast has been presented to the church at Galatia and us. And that you have to decide, are you going to walk in bondage? Or are you going to walk in freedom? Are you going to walk based on fear? Or are you going to walk based in liberty? Are you going to walk in, 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 a, in a restrictive sense? Or are you going to walk with a, a love sense? And, and these two parallels that are going. And he's continuing on and he's explaining deeper that when we walk in the Spirit, there are certain characteristics, certain priorities, certain attitudes that are just evident. And so he's reminding us again in verse 25. If you're going to live by the Spirit, you're also going to keep in step with the Spirit. But I think it's really, really important to notice something. The passage begins with a warning. It ends in a warning as well. And here's what the warning is. Watch out. Watch yourself. Watch what creeps in if you're not careful. And he begins with this warning. He says, let us not become conceited provoking one another, envying one another. And I want to pause there as we get ready to dive into chapter 6 and, and remind you something. There are a couple of characteristics that are absolutely lethal to successful human relationships and spiritual relationships. And those two attitudes that eventually seep in when we're walking in the flesh will destroy our ability to walk in unity and harmony. And those attitudes are competition and comparison. When we walk with the spirit of competition, I got to get ahead. I got to be number one. I don't want them to have more than me. And comparison, look at what they have. Look at what I got. Look at their reward. Look at my punishment. When you look at those two life with those two attitudes, they're going to be the seeds of division and hatred and disharmony and disunity that violates the very nature and character of the Holy Spirit who calls us to unity with God and as children of God, unity with each other. 
Now, this isn't, this isn't some kind of, you know, sappy, surreal, overly rom uh, romantically uh, inclined type of thing. This is reality. Stop and think how much conflict exists in marriages, in business, in our community, in a family, over the attitudes that creep in that revolve around competing in comparison. Have you ever had toddlers? And by the way, this is always, this is always amusing to me. Uh, when, when a psychologist like, likes to say, you know, children are born good. Really? Have you been to the preschools lately? I can, I, can, I can absolutely drive a stake through the heart of that lie in about 30 seconds. Put two kids on the floor and drop one toy in between them and watch the peace and harmony that breaks out. It's in our very nature to want the toy. Uh, by the way, you can drop two toys down, as long as they're not the same toy, and watch else what, what else happens. Because it doesn't matter what toy they end up with, they want the other one. And that competitive, comparative nature that begins with toddlers takes root even deeper with us as adults. And it drives many of us to places that cause heartbreak and division and pain and in some cases, horrific actions. And this is how Paul's starting out. He's saying, be really, really careful. Watch out. Watch out this natural tendency that we have that's born in us by the brokenness of our sin nature where we're constantly looking and saying, I wish I had that or he doesn't deserve this, or if I got what I deserved, I'd be having this, and how come he got the promotion, and she's prettier than me, and he's got more money in the bank than I do, and I work harder than him. And we look at all of these different things that are constantly causing us to be dissatisfied and resentful, and that spirit overtakes us, and we end up walking in it and stewing in it, and eventually it overtakes us, and it creates conflict where it is not necessary. Well, what is the opposite of that? The opposite is rejoicing in what God gives other people. The idea is when we understand that if all of us got what we deserved, being totally depraved that we are, we'd already be in hell. Therefore, everything I get is a blessing. Everything I get is more than I deserve. Everything that I get is something that's worthy of a response of gratitude in my heart and in my life. But you know how it is. How many of you have taken a vacation this year and you've said to, to, to your friends, your coworkers, you say, yeah, I, me and my family, we went, we went to the beach last week. And what is it often that they say? Must be nice. You ever said that? Anybody say that to you? Get a new car. And they say, oh, oh, because somebody robbed a bank. <laughs> you ever heard that one? Yeah. yeah you ought to be a pastor. <laughs> so a couple of years ago, um, my car just died. I was driving a 1998 Acura, all right? And this is just a couple of years ago. So this is a 20-year-old car, right? And I was driving, driving it, and it had like, I don't know, 200,000 miles on it or something like that. And one day it just said, I'm done. <laughs> and, um, and my wife was out of town, and, and I didn't have wheels. And so a friend of mine uh, who owned a used BMW said, here, I've got this car. I want you to use it. And, uh, and I said, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. That could be a problem if I'm driving your BMW around, all right? 
And, uh, and he said, oh, no, 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 it's, not, it's, it's 10 years old, it's, it's whatever. And I said, yeah, it's just the fact that it's a BMW, okay? He said, yeah, but I only pay that. I said, it doesn't matter. But he kept at me, kept at me, and almost to the point where I felt, like, rude. And so I said, okay, okay, I'm going to drive the BMW. And inside, I'm going, yes, man, this is going to be so much fun. You know, I, I later found out, by the way, that BMW stands for bring my wallet. Uh, because uh, <laughs> the guy later told me that they, he, he got rid of it, and I said, where did it happen to it? He goes, I couldn't afford to keep it up. But, uh, but anyway, so I, I, dr I drove the BMW. I got it on a Friday. Saturday, I put a lot of miles on it just for fun, and I drove it to church on Sunday. Now, and again, some of, probably, I don't even remember who it is, so you can relax, but I'm quite confident some of you in this room are in this illustration, okay? <laughs> because as soon as I drove on the campus, here it started, right? Four times before I left, somebody said, well, I guess they're paying the preacher extra now. And, you know, it's human nature, right? Yeah, and I handed the keys back to him the next day because I couldn't stand the stress. I, I, it's just too much. But, but here, here's the reality. That, that's our nature, isn't it? And we don't even mean stuff by it. Not nobody, by the way, if you're saying, oh, I remember when I did that, don't worry about it. First, I don't remember you. And secondly, I know I would have probably done the same thing because I can be an idiot. I know that you don't like to think of that, but I'm, you know, I'm thoughtless many times. So, so here, here's the reality, though. It's something that's born in us, that whenever we see somebody else, and they've got a little something more, they got a little, that, that, we, that we say, yeah, but, 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 but what about me? What about mine? Life's not fair. How come they get off so easy? And we start these things, and it creates dissension and competition and comparison and resentment, and as that foments and it gives rise to these attitudes, Satan's just like, yes, man, I got him where I, where I need him. I got him going on. That's why Paul said, you know, I had to learn this eventually, that whatever state I'm in, I can be content. And that is an embodiment of someone who has learned to live apart from the competitive, comparative life. Paul said, I have been blessed beyond measure, and I have been thoroughly humbled. I've known great power, wealth, prestige, and reputation, and I've spent the night in prisons on cots of straw with rats for roommates. And he said, I've learned this. It is possible to be content. This is, this is where we start in our journey. The godly contentment that comes with knowing that we are loved by the God of the universe and our worth is not found in what we possess, but in what possesses us. We've been bought with a price. We are filled with his spirit. We are accepted as beloved by the redeemer of the universe. There is no better place to be. There is no amount of wealth that is greater than that. There is no position of authority or power or prestige that we should value more than to be loved by Christ. So that's just where we start. Now, we go on. And he's saying, brothers, if you're walking in the Spirit, let me give you a little challenge. If you've been able to grow beyond this constant niggling comparative, competitive life that's always consumed with self. Let me give you a little challenge. He said, if anyone is caught in any transgression, 
you who are spiritual should restoring in a spirit of weakness. Meekness, I'm sorry, not weakness, but meekness or gentleness. All right, so let's stop here. And let's look at the struggle. Because there are some things in this passage that I think are really important for the believer to consider. The first thing is this. He's reminding us that sin can overtake any of us. Sin can overtake any of us. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, is it interesting because the word that's translated caught here, and in some, in, in some translations it is over, the word is translated overtaken, and I actually think that's probably a better translation of the Greek word because there is an element of the word that's in the Greek here that often is used in, in a situation where there would be surprise involved. You ever been surprised and it just kind of sneaks up on you? You know, it, it just comes upon you. Uh, I, was, I was walking across my yard, and you know, it's been so dry lately that, that I've been having to water my garden, and it's done absolutely no good. But I, one of my kids got me a, a hose a couple of years ago. It was a really good heavy-duty hose. But the problem with the hose is it's black. Don't get ahead of me, okay? <laughs> so I had used the hose, and then I'd use it to water some plants, and I kind of moved it around the yard. And then, because I'm lazy, I just dropped it in the yard because I knew the yard guy wasn't coming for several days. And I left it there and I forgot. And the grass grew up a little bit. And so I'm walking across the yard and I'm not paying a lot of attention. And I look down and I'm just ready to step on the hose. Only my brain doesn't say hose, it says 37 foot black mamba. Now, by the way, it wouldn't have mattered if it was a three-inch garter snake. The response would have been just the same. But anybody tells you that Baptists can't dance, don't know me when I think there's a snake near my feet, all right? And after, you know, I'd recovered my, my heart rate and, and so forth, I, I felt very, very foolish. But, but that's, that's the idea. When you get caught by surprise. Have you, ever, have you ever been just living your life, having a good day? Things are going pretty well. And then all of a sudden, bam, like out of nowhere, temptation comes, Satan comes, a situation arises, and you just lose your mind. And you say something unkind or blasphemous, or you respond viscerally in a way that is uncharacteristic of not only Christ, but of the way you just normally like to live your life. And you're like, where did that come from? Well, you were overtaken. You were caught by surprise. And it's interesting, this passage isn't referring to someone who is deliberately choosing to walk and to live in sin. There are passages that address that, but this is talking about someone who is walking in the Spirit, doing their best. But one day, one moment, one action, one response, and boom, they are out of control. They have fallen into sin. They have stumbled. What should be our response to that? Unfortunately, for many of us, our response is to double down. You do to me, I'm going to do to you back twice. You ever heard a politician say that? I can name about a half a dozen who brag about that. But that's not the Spirit of Christ. It's not to give back what they've given you. And i got to tell you, that's hard. I'm from Missouri. I'm, I'm, I'm an honorary country kid, I'm telling you. 
cut me off in traffic, and, and I'm not going to say, well, God bless you, brother. Have a good day. <laughs> you know? That's not the first thing that comes to my mind. Well, where do I get that? I'm overtaken. I'm overtaken in that moment. And the scripture says, all of us need to be mindfully aware that the battle of our fallen state is that we're constantly in a fight against being overtaken in a moment by a sin. When we see somebody stumbling, what are we supposed to do? Well, I don't know about you, but if I'm walking next to somebody and they stumble, I immediately want to reach out and grab them and help them. I learned years ago, my, my parents, and, and I suggested this one time in a, in a blog article I had written and got thoroughly excoriated for it. I was called a chauvinist. I was called a, a oh, just a patriarchal something or other. But I was taught when I was a kid that if you're a man, you walk next to the street on a sidewalk and have the woman so that if a car jumps the curb, it hits you and not them. I was taught that, literally. My dad would see me walking with my sisters or with my mom or something, and he'd say, Dan, next to the street, next to the street. That was strange. He taught me if you're going up the stairs, you go behind a woman, and down the stairs you go in front of the woman, so if the woman falls, you catch them. That was the idea, that if you were walking on ice, you extended your arm in an L-shaped like this, and she would have put her hand there so that she would feel steady on the ice. That was called being a gentleman in those days, but that was the natural And if they were to slip or whatever, you took. I would go into a house. I would go in first if the room was dark. Why was that? So that if there's an intruder in there, that was the way we were taught. The idea was be mindful of who you're with. Well, the scripture is saying that in terms of how we engage with each other. Be mindful of who you're with. And when they stumble, don't go ahead and say, nice one. No, you don't do that, right? You don't give them a little extra oomph. You don't burst into laughter, unless you're a Burrell. We have a tradition of that. If somebody hurts themselves, we laugh. Then we say, are you okay, while we're still laughing. But that's just a sick thing that's in my family. But no, there's, the, the reality is, is if you see someone who's struggling, our response, if we're walking in the Spirit, ought to be, how can I assist you? How can I help you? And when it is sin, we don't ignore it. If they're surprised by sin, if they're, we get involved. What's going on? What's up? How can I help you? Why are you responding this way? What is happening? It provides an accountability. And this is speaking to all of us, acknowledging that any of us can be overtaken by sin. It can be a sudden flash of anger. It can be a moment of lustful behavior. It can be a flood of inappropriate language. It can be a period of doubt and depression that makes us question everything in our life. It can be misplaced priorities that don't reflect what we know to be true. It could be fear that causes us to forget the reality and promises of God. It can be greed that inspires us to hoard rather than share. It can be weariness that gives way to apathy. It could be compromise that leads to excess and addiction. But somewhere in your life, if you're honest, and if you'll watch me, I'll give you plenty of examples, there are those moments when we think we're doing just fine, and the next thing you know, we're stumbling. And as we stumble, fellow believers have the opportunity to get involved, to reorient them, and to get them back on the same path. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but let me just say this. None of us are exempt. None of us are exempt from the moments when we are chased down by Satan and overtaken by our old nature. 
And it's a dangerous situation to get to a point where you say, well, I just don't struggle with sin anymore, or I don't struggle with this or that anymore. Because you need to be aware that Satan sits in the shadows of our heart looking for ways to trip us up. His desire is your destruction. The Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, your adversary. Notice what he said, your adversary. What does that mean? Your enemy. Who? The devil. Walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He has a strategy for your defeat. He laughs at your stumbles, and he prays that you're injured every time you fall. So what should we do if we're on the same team, if we love people, if we're walking in the Spirit, if in our heart is the law of Christ, and we'll examine that passage in just a second, we ought to say, I'm going to intervene. I'm going to get involved. So here's the second thing. Helping the struggling is a spiritual act. Helping the struggling is a spiritual act. Now, notice what it says. If anyone's caught in the spirit, uh, in the transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit. Spiritual is a word that really, that's really abused in a lot of ways today. And, and I, I want us to, to stop and kind of examine the, this, this section of the scripture carefully. Because we kind of have a, a who and a what and a, and a how and a why, you know, different things going on here. But who are we talking about, first of all? We're talking about the spiritual. What does spiritual mean here? It simply means mature. It means mature. To be spiritual has a connotation of walking in Christ-likeness. We sometimes call this spiritual maturity. And, and what, what it simply is, is we're walking with an awareness that Christ lives in us, that his word matters, and that our desire is to be like him. When we have that, it changes our perspective. You know, many times people use the word spiritual today in kind of a mystical sense. And uh, it always amuses me when somebody, you know, uh, they're, they're trying to demonstrate that they have values or whatever. And often it, it seems to be people in Hollywood who like to say this, but they say, I'm a real spiritual person. And when, when somebody says, well, I'm a real spiritual person, I always say, well, what does that mean? And, and then they'll, they'll use words like, well, I'm connected to well, connected to what and how? And, you know, it begs a lot of questions for me when, when someone uses this phrase because here's, here's what it means. It means being like Jesus. If you are a spiritual person, you're going to respond like Jesus. You're going to walk in the Spirit. You're walking under the authority, under the control of the Holy Spirit that lives in you. That's why the Scripture says, don't be drunk with wine. So don't use something else to control you. But be filled with the Spirit, be under the control. The word literally means under the authority of. Who are you under the authority of? From moment to moment, that's an important question to be asking yourself. Am I under the authority of anger? Am I under the authority of alcohol? Am I under the authority of greed? Am I under the, or am I under the authority of the Holy Spirit? And minute by minute, how we make our decisions is, in, is in like a, a gauge of whether or not we're walking in the Spirit. And that's something that ought to be careful. We've got to be careful. Of. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 12 through 16 says this, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for their folly or foolishness to him. 
And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So when it says you who are spiritual, it's literally speaking to those of us who have the mind of Christ, the spirit of God that lives within us. So the who is the spiritually mature person. The what, what are we supposed to do? Well, he says, restore. When you restore something, and by the way, restoring comes after correction, and and there's multiple passages that deal with this. So it's not ignore the sin, because you have to deal with the sin in order to restore the conduct. Whenever you see Jesus, and and a lot of people have said, well, look at Jesus, he forgave this, he forgave that, but he always forgave after he confronted. When he was at the woman at the well, and the woman was was questioning him back and forth, and he, he made sure that she understood that he knew exactly what was going on with her. And he said, well, you know, where's your husband? And she goes, well, I don't have a husband. She thought she was being slick. And he said, well, just in case you think you're pulling one over on me, let me just say this to you. Yeah, you don't. You got five husbands, and the guy you're living with right now isn't even your husband at all. So you've been around the block a few times, honey. Now let's talk about where you need to go. Whenever the, the woman was at the well, you know, there was one, or not, not the woman, the woman t- overtaken in adultery, uh, captured in adultery by all the religious muckety-mucks of, of, of her region. And they brought and they said, we're going to stone this woman. She's an adulteress. She's a prostitute. She's a harlot. She's, and boy, they're just all outraged. And everybody's thinking, oh man, I'm so much better than this woman. And, and, uh, and they bring her to Jesus, trying to trip Jesus up and, and get Jesus to do something or say something that was outside of his perceived authority and his lane. And they were going to try to set him up. And Jesus looked at him and he said, well, yeah, I guess you should be stoned. But let me tell you, say this, if whoever here... Whoever here is qualified, how about that? You cast the first stone. If you've never sinned, you cast the first stone. If you're perfect, you cast that first stone. And then they all just kind of like one by one, like, uh, like you ever seen that meme of Homer Simpson slipping back into the, the, the shrubs? That's what they were doing right off. The one person qualified to stone the woman was challenging them to do it. But he confronted the sin because what did he say to her? He said, now, 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 now that I've gotten the pressure off, go live your life right. Go live your life right. We always confront the sin, but the purpose is to get people right. And so this idea of restoring simply means putting them back on the right path. Restoring to the right condition. And it's a goal. When you restore something, if you take a piece of furniture and restore it, what are you trying to do? You're trying to make it look new again, make it usable again. And so the scripture says, if you see somebody who stumbles and falls, what do you do? You try to put them back on the right path and make them usable again. Make them, make them so that, that, that God shines through them and they see Christ's likeness in them and they can be a good testimony again. That's, that's our goal. And folks, that ought to be our goal as believers because every one of us in here is broken. Every one of us in here have the capability of being overtaken in a moment of anger or sin or lust or rage or, or confusion or doubt or, or whatever. And who else is going to love us except our family? Who else is going to care about us except maybe those of us who understand our condition? Who else is going to be better positioned than those nearest to us running the same race? that we're running. It's not just our job. It's our privilege to be able to do this. So the who's the spiritually mature? The what is restoration? 
How are we supposed to do it? Well, the first thing you need to do is make sure they know their place. Is that what the Bible says? No. Smack them up one alongside the head, right? Get their attention. That's how you discipline. They're not going to respect you if they don't fear you, right? No, that's not what the Scripture says. It says do it gently. We are to go about spiritual confrontation and restoration in a spirit of gentleness. We ought to not take delight in it. Instead, it's an opportunity. It's to show Christ's likeness, not superiority. Gentleness is not a sign of weakness. And harshness is not a sign of strength. The Bible says that God looks to us as we're his children. Have you ever noticed the love of a, of a mother when her kids are hurting? There's something special about that. You know, my mom, when I'd, I'd get, you know, the cold or bronchitis or something, uh, she'd, she'd set me up in, in my bed, and she'd get out. Anybody remember Vicks Vapor Rub? Oh, yes. I can smell that and feel like my mom's hugging me even now, you know. And she'd rub it on my chest. She'd button up my PJs so that it would be nice and warm. She'd get me a glass of cold water and lay it, set it next to the bed. She'd bring me a book I could read. She'd make sure I put a little bit underneath each, each nostril. And why? Because your mom loves you. I always knew to go to my mom because my dad thought it was hilarious to be the, the brute, right? You know, I'd, I'd go to my dad and I'd say, I think I got a splinter. And he'd say, let me see that. And I'd say, oh, no, 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 no. I, I'm going to take it to mom. No, no, no. Let me see that. And he'd, he'd, he'd bring it. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's got to come out. That's got to come out. It's a big problem. Where's my knife? Here is my knife. I'm going to dig that thing out right now. Yeah, you know, and, and my dad thought that was hilarious because he probably would have fainted if he'd had to take it out. But he knew I would, ah, I'd run to my mom. Why? Because mom was gentle. And she would say, okay, here's what I want you to do. You stand here. I'm going to get the tweezers. And if it needed a needle, she'd warm the needle or cook the needle over a flame, you know, so we get all the germs off of it. I don't know what you've been doing with those needles, but apparently they were just filled with bacteria because she always just took and ran it over a flame till all the germs were cooked off of it. It was bright red. And pfft, went, or no, no, not really. But, you know, she, and, then, and then she would just gently work at it and work at it. And sometimes she would sing me a little song. I was 18. She's, no, not really. But she, <laughs> she, she'd get it out, you know. She'd, and when she got done, she'd got, she'd get, Again, I keep showing my age this morning, which is really easy. But Bactine, does he remember Bactine? Because Bactine replaced something called Mercurochrome and Iodine. Remember those two? They were bright red, and they were the tools of Satan. I'm sure they were made in hell in a big cauldron. You put one little drop of those on there, and your finger felt like it was on fire for a day. You know, but no, she got Bactine, no sting, no stain. You just put it on there, and she put a little Band-Aid on it. And that was good to go. See, that's why, because she was gentle. She understood. She was interested in not seeing me writhe in pain, but to be restored, to feel better. Now, once you understand something, when we stumble, God grieves. When we stumble, God is concerned. And when we stumbled, God has asked us to serve as his agent and our spirit, our actions, our attitudes ought to be reflective of the character and nature of God at that moment. A gentleness 
and of kindness that we love and we lift up. And we should want the same graciousness for others that we would desire for ourselves were we to be overtaken. Number three, we are commanded to take action. If you look in verse two, it says, what do you do? Bear their burdens. Bear the burdens. We've got to get involved for their sake. We don't walk by, we get involved. For Christ's sake, we don't just ignore it. We get involved for the body's sake. We bear their burdens. We watch, we ask ask questions, we listen, we hear, we intervene, we protect, we provide, we journey, we'll let ourselves be inconvenienced, we sacrifice, we confront, we teach, we restore, we pray, we warn. All of these are godly responses to an awareness that someone is struggling and stumbling and tripping up the stairs and fainting in the final leg of the race. We take action. Several years ago, 2019, the World Track and Field Championships were being held in Doha, Qatar. And there was a runner from Aruba, and if you've ever been to Doha, and I was just there earlier this year, it's hot. It is e is desert. It's just miserable. And there was a runner from Aruba who was running the, the 5K race, which is a little over three miles, and he got dehydrated and he got his muscle spasms, and he was trying to win the world championship in the 5K, and his body began breaking down. And as he was in the last few hundred yards, something unfolded that I believe represents how we as Christians should be responding when our brothers and sisters in Christ get in a crisis as well. Watch this, if you would. Bremo Sukar Darbo of Guinea-Bissau is literally dragging the brave Aruban Jonathan Busby to the finish line. They are going to finish together here. The crowd are on their feet. Anybody who's able, standing to salute this outstanding demonstration of sportsmanship and camaraderie. They didn't travel here to drop out. They travelled here to finish. Bremer, Sukar Davo and Jonathan Busby to a huge ovation from this massive crowd in Doha have finished the 5,000 metres. And what a demonstration of the esprit de corps and the friendship that exists between runners of all levels from all countries around the world. See, they were no longer running to see who won the race. They both won. Oh, maybe not the metal part of the race, but the important part of the race. If you know Christ as your Savior, you've won. You've won. Heaven is real. It's sure. You're a member of the family of God. You've been redeemed. But the race is still going on. And if we're aware while we're running, there are going to be those who, for whatever reason, have been overtaken in the moment and are struggling and straining and stumbling. And it is our privilege not to leave them behind so that everybody can look at us, but rather so that we are there to help them finish well, well. We are to take action, even if it's at our expense.
to help those who are struggling, coming alongside of them, helping them to complete the race. And that is the difference that walking in the Spirit that Paul was talking about makes in how we run. Number four, we're to be actively working toward the achievement of unity. Verses 3 and 4, you, you look at this passage and you, you, you see how it continues. If you're, anyone think you're something, remember you're really nothing. You're deceiving yourself. Test your own work. Don't be comparing and competing. This is where the other warning comes from, the first part. And this, this ending part is saying, again, get your eyes off yourself. There's something bigger going on, whether, whether or not everybody knows you and paying attention to you and, and how impressive you are. In the end, you're going to have to bear your own load. You're going to stand account for what you do. And in all honesty, at this moment, this is a test for you as well. Will you walk by? Or will you stop and minister? Will you be the good Samaritan? Or will you be the religiously pious, cold-hearted Pharisee? Throughout Paul's letter, he constantly emphasizes the importance of unity within the body and the family. And remember this, unity is God's desired condition. God wants us to be one with him and one with each other. Unity is not unanimity. We're not always going to agree on everything. Unity is not uniformity. We're not always going to respond in the same way, look the same way, prefer the same things. But unity is intentionally living peacefully in spite of our differences, in spite of our struggles. We unite around a shared love of God and a value toward truth. And when we see each other, not as competitors, but as image bearers of God, imago Dei, image bearers of God, we will see them as not as less thans, not as threats, not as competitors, but as people in whom we get to be God's agent of grace in their life. We are to live in communion with them. We hear a lot of talk about being one with nature, you know, the companionship we all have with, you know, our pets or so on. But make no mistake, the communion, the union, the oneness that God desires is the fellowship, that what is called parakaleo in the Greek. And it literally means to come alongside of like this. That's what God desires for us. It is for us and those who bear the image of God, particularly fellow believers. Number five, we need to assist with humble self-awareness. It says, keep watch over yourself. Watch over yourself. Watch out, lest you be tempted. There is a risk that comes with having to correct others. And we need to be very mindful of that. When you see somebody stumble... We have to be careful that we haven't become blind to our own sins, our own weaknesses, our own vulnerabilities. And it can be human nature for us to do that. That's why the scripture said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted above your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you can endure it. And so we have to make sure that we have this self-awareness that says, while I help you, I could be you. While I assist you, I may someday need assistance. While I am bearing your burden, I must be willing to let somebody walk with me and bear my burden 
when I am in a moment of vulnerability. The last thing is this, our focus must remain on Christ. This is an interesting turn of phrase that's used in this passage, and it took me a long time to kind of finally figure out what it was saying, because it said, when you bear one another's burdens, you fulfill the law of Christ. And I can say, well, what in the world is the law of Christ? I've never seen that in any other passage of Scripture. What does that mean? Well, <clears throat> it's not nearly as complicated as it seems. The law of Christ here simply means the nature, the tendency, the, the philosophy of Christ, the, the values he holds, the reputation he has. And it's kind of an awkward translation, but it just simply means, you know Jesus, this is what he would do. The law of Christ, the nature, the, 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 the priorities, the attitudes, the uh, Christ-likeness. So in other words, when you are bearing one another's burdens, when you are helping them, when you pay somebody else's bill, when you talk to somebody who's discouraged, when you say, hey, be careful about that, that kind of leads you into the wrong direction. When you go over to somebody's house because you haven't seen them in their spiritual exercises in a while, they haven't been at church, they haven't been at a small group, whatever, and you go and you intervene, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. You're doing what Jesus would do. Let me ask you, when was the last time you did what Jesus would do with someone who is struggling? Because here's what our tendency is. Our tendency often is, well, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to be rejected. I don't want them to think I'm judging. I don't want to get in a mess. I don't want to be asked for something. And so we start making excuses that allow us to feel good about letting somebody we claim to love trip and fall while we just keep running the race ourselves. And Paul said, don't do that. Don't do that. Get involved. The reality is, we can never think of ourselves as superior. If you aren't struggling with something that somebody else is, that doesn't make you superior. It just makes you different. There are people in this room struggling with a variety of things, a variety of differences. And the things that you struggle with may not be something I struggle with. I don't struggle with addiction to substances. Well, maybe caffeine, but not even that, really. Right? But I can tell you a whole armload of things that I struggle with that you would just shake your head at and say, really? You struggle with that? That's a problem for you? Because I'm never dealing with that. Exactly. And my list of strengths is not make me superior to your list of strengths, and my list of weaknesses does not make me inferior to your list of weaknesses. The reality is we all have strengths, we all have weaknesses, we all have ten points of temptation, we all have points of struggle. So our focus has to remain on Christ. What would Jesus do? How would Jesus respond? What would Jesus say? And when we get our eyes off Jesus, what we're likely to do is ignore the person who's struggling or feel justified in our struggle. Now listen carefully to me when I say this to you. If you compare your responses, your values, your priorities to other Christians, to pastors, to people who are supposedly devout, you're going to get disappointed every single time. And your eyes are on the wrong place. And Satan often uses the struggles of those near us to convince us that we don't have to put on Christ-likeness. If you want an excuse for going into sin, Satan will provide you a dozen. If you want an excuse for quitting Jesus, quitting your faith, walking away from the way you were taught, if you want to believe it's too hard or it doesn't matter 
or you can't be sure. If you want to believe all that, Satan will give you excuse after excuse after excuse. He'll bring people into your lives that will tell you lies and make you feel good. The only one you can count on is he who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can count on him. If, and I can't imagine this would ever be the case, but if ever I were to lose my mind and to get up and say, folks, I have an announcement to make. I no longer believe this. Don't let that rock your faith. Don't let that rock your faith because your faith was never built on me or it shouldn't have been. If you find out Pastor Ben and I are, I don't, I don't know, going to the casinos in Las Vegas every weekend and partying on weekends, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something absurd, all right? It would be absurd, right? You say, well, then I, that's it. I'm done with Jesus. I'm done with Christ. I'm done with Christians. I'm done. No, 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 no. <laughs> what you need to do is get up in our face and confront us and to put our, our, your arm around us and to tell us the truth. But your faith ought never be in your pastor or your elders or your parents or the guy who led you to Christ or the lady who discipled you. Your focus always must remain on Christ. And he will not vary. He will not change. He will not let you down. But if you want an excuse, Satan will give them to you. He'll do it every time. Because that's how he operates. I'm out of time, but here's what I want you to think about. Who do you know who is in danger because they're unaware, because they're being overtaken, because they're walking carelessly, or they're simply broken and worn out? Is there somebody in your life, and you know, if you were watching them from the stands, they're running out of gas? They're stumbling. You can see them heaving, catching their breath. The second question is, what will you do when somebody near you stumbles? When you've identified that person, when you see them struggling, what are you going to do? Turn around? Cover up? Feel superior? Or are you going to come out of the stands and finish the race with them? Put, them, put their arm over your shoulder. The person who is stumbling is your family. And it's always worth the effort. It's worth the risk. It's worth the cost. And let me say this. If this morning you're stumbling, thank you for being at church. Thank you for doing it, even if you didn't feel like doing it. If you're here this morning and you're only here because you were trying to set a good example for your kids or because, well, where else am I going to go? I want to say to you, I'm glad you're here. Be honest with somebody next to you. Be honest with us. Let us have that privilege of putting your arm around our shoulder. Because I promise you this, you ain't heavy, you're our brother.